think about the stories of Jesus and Jesus' actions in the Gospels. In a lot of those stories, he gets into a dispute with the Pharisees. And what are those disputes always about? They're always about flexibility. For the Pharisees, it was, we need to keep the law. We need to be on the straight and narrow. We need to follow a protocol. You could even say, we have a program. And Jesus was always breaking the boundaries of that program and saying, no, your law is too narrow. Your neighborhood is too narrow. Your thinking is too much about process and not enough about love. And so as we try to make computers in our image, we really need to guard against remaking ourselves in the computer's image because that is going to be far too narrow, far too legalistic, far too process-bound, and not at all what Jesus tried to teach us. It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason. But then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, Being Human in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? My guest today is Dr. Noreen Herzfeld. She's the Nicholas and Bernice Reuter Professor of Science and Religion at St. John's University and the College of St. Benedict in Collegeville, Minnesota. Dr. Herzfeld holds degrees in computer science and mathematics from Penn State and a PhD in theology from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. She teaches courses in both computer science and theology, conducts research at the intersection of religion and technology, and has spoken and written extensively on how new technologies like AI challenge our relationship to God and to each other. Noreen Hersfeld, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gretchen. It's my pleasure to be here. So you've been described or have perhaps described yourself as an upright Quaker with Lutheran leanings or Lutheran roots. What does that mean to you theologically? And why do you think it matters where we land personally on the Christian faith spectrum in the context of our roles in the larger body of Christ? Well, the combination of Quakerism and Lutheranism, I think, has really informed how I approach theology and how my own theological views have changed over time. I was raised as a Lutheran, and I went off to St. Olaf College to get a degree in sacred music and was trained there as a classical musician playing organ and, and voice and conducting. I also got a math major while I was there. When I went to graduate school, I went to the local Lutheran church, and 
I found two problems. One was that they were engaging in one of these disputes Lutherans like to do, where half the congregation thought the pastor walked on water and the other half thought he was the <laughs> devil incarnate. But the other was that this was just the time when a lot of churches were moving from essentially sacred organ and choral music to praise bands. And, mm. you know, having gotten a degree in sacred music and just been steeped in the classical choral and organ tradition, I thought, you know, if you can't do liturgy well, just don't do it at all. And, and that's what led <laughs> me to the Quakers. But I soon found with the Quakers that uh, God truly spoke to me out of the silence. And mm. what that represented for me, I think, was a movement from a cataphatic view of God, where God was found in superfluity. When I was in college, one of my favorite poems was by Robinson Jeffers, and it begins, it is by his great superfluousness that we know our God. But as I moved both into studying mathematics for a graduate degree and worshiping with the Quakers, I found God in the silence, and I moved to a more apophatic view of faith that, as we find in, in the first line of the Tao Te Ching, the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. And to me, it became the God that can be named is not God, and that we find God in that still small voice that mm. speaks out of the silence. Wow. that That's actually an incredibly evocative journey that you've just described. And it sounds like it started with what they call the worship wars right now. It's like either the music's too loud or it's too quiet. It's too modern or it's too old fashioned. It's too hymny or it's too crazy. It's the whole 7-Eleven idea, you know, the, the seven phrases repeated 11 times, as opposed to meaty theological hymns and music of that yeah. time. Exactly. Well, you, um, you've sort of but that was the end of my journey because after I got my degrees in math and, and computer science, I came to St. John's University, which has the, or at least at the time, had the largest Benedictine monastery hmm. associated with the college, and so. But the Benedictines became a very large influence as well on my faith journey particularly their understandings of hospitality uh, and their understandings of the bringing together of prayer and work, that, that worship is, is also found very much in what we do and what we do in each little action throughout the day. Right. Yeah, it sounds like you have kind of a rich tapestry of influence from different aspects of the Christian faith. That's informed you. Yeah, I, I think I do. And then when I was at the Graduate Theological Union, I was living right across from a Presbyterian church. So the Reformed tradition came creeping in. And uh, it was at that time that I was introduced to the theological works of Reinhold Niebuhr and Karl Barth. And those became also very influential. And anyone who's read my work will see Niebuhr and Barth all over it. Yeah. Anyone who's talked to you, actually, because I could say the same for both. So 
the idea of computer science, mathematics, and theology as a combination for a life's work might seem odd to some people, but explain why it's not. Well, this was another journey that I took. As an undergraduate, as I moved into mathematics and particularly went off to Penn State to to get a degree, part of mathematics I was interested in was formal logic. And what I loved about mathematics and logic in particular was its cleanness. You could prove something. It it was either provable or, or it wasn't. Answers were either right or they were wrong. Computer program either ran or it didn't. <laughs> and I, I really found a lot, you know, of, I think, comfort in that. I came to St. John's and I began teaching computer science. And at a certain point, I started teaching artificial intelligence and started bringing some questions of computer ethics into my classes. And I realized that I had run away from the human messiness that one finds in the humanities or the social sciences. And yet, it was precisely in that human messiness where the most interesting questions lay. And in artificial intelligence, the question that I got to thinking about is, why do we want to make the computer in our own image? Because computers are most useful to us as tools when they do the things we don't do very well. You know, they crunch the big numbers. They dive through the huge databases that we wouldn't, couldn't take the time to get through. And that makes them useful. But there has always been this impetus, this dream. We find it in science fiction and we find it in computer science and computer scientists to make the computer like us, to make it in our image, to make robots look like us, to make the computer think like us. And I was thinking about this question and I thought, well, great, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to go on a sabbatical. I'll attack this question. <laughs> and I went off on my sabbatical and it has to be in history, one of the least productive sabbaticals that anybody <laughs> ever went on because I got nowhere. And the reason was that this wasn't a question I could approach as a computer scientist or a mathematician. This was a question about human values, about human predispositions and interests, and it had to be approached from the humanities. So I came back to St. John's, and I thought more about, well, okay, I need to get the background, because I was still thinking about this question. And I thought, well, I could approach this philosophically, theologically, maybe psychologically. But at St. John's, we have a graduate school of theology. And also, as I thought about this question, why are we trying to make the computer in our image? I thought, whoa, where have I heard that language before? Well, Genesis 1, right? We say we were created in the image of God. And so the practical side of me said, hey, there's a school of theology here. I'm going to study some theology. But also I thought, well, that's interesting. Is the image we're trying to give to the computer the same as the image we think we reflect from God? And uh, that became the question that I pursued as I went to the Graduate Theological Union and studied theology. Right. And the question I'm still struggling with 
um, AI has become such a buzzword these days. It's almost like if you want to get any notice of what you're doing in computer science right now, you have to call it AI. Right. And it seems to me, again, to be a resurgence of this idea that the computer should be in our image, right. that robots should look like us and act like us, yeah. and computers should talk like us and think like us. Yeah. I'm not sure that's really the most productive avenue we should be going down. No, and um, and the idea of optimizing, as you've said, for intelligence versus optimizing for love is an interesting thought experiment. Although if you drill down pretty quickly, you find out that a computer can't do that optimization for love or the self-sacrificial nature of the kind of love that God gives us. But I want to take a little detour to, to something you've said recently in reference to Jesus's command that we love the Lord our God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves. And you've asked a provocative question around this in an age of artificial intelligence, which you've been talking about. In other words, machines that are created to look, talk, and act like us, is AI our new neighbor? And if it is, what does it look like? What does the neighborhood look like? There are many who do think that developing AI is simply enlarging the neighborhood, that we're simply adding to the, the neighbors that we have, and that we should be considering giving robots the same sorts of rights as human rights are, um, and and bringing them in as as a part of our human community. First of all, I would say that a lot of that is wishful thinking. Um, just recently, an engineer at Google, when looking at the answers that uh, GPT-3 was putting out, for example, said, it's intelligent. And uh, it's not. <laughs> we are so quick to project. And in many ways, I am guilty of this myself. You know, I have a dog at home. And when I see the dog have a certain expression on her face or, or do something, I'm very quick to project the kind of motivations that I would have right. if I had that expression or, or, or <laughs> I was doing what the dog is doing. And I have to remind myself, wait a minute, she's a dog. She's not a human. She's right. not probably thinking the way you're thinking. Right. What we do that with the computer as well, when we see something, that shows the least bit of what looks like agency when we see something that shows the ability to express, particularly in human language, we're very quick to attribute agency and intelligence there when it really isn't there. It's a good mimic. It's a good puppet. Yeah. But it's still only that. So... Do computers enlarge the neighborhood? Not yet, certainly. And not in the way that I think many people uh, wish that they did. Now, what I fear that they do instead is narrow the neighborhood. Hmm. And we see that, probably most of us, with the algorithms 
that control our Twitter feed or our Facebook feed or whatever. Oh. It's putting us into bubbles because it's trying to show us what it thinks we're going to like so that we stay engaged with the program and so that our eyes are caught by the advertisers' ads. This is the real AI. You know, when we think of AI, we tend to have this science fiction mindset that, oh, it's robots, you know. Oh, it's or it's voices like GPT-3, game playing programs like AlphaGo. But the real AI right now that is influencing our neighborhood and ourselves is all of these algorithms that are working behind the scenes and that are trying to influence us um, here in the West, mostly to buy things. Right. Uh, but if we were in China, it would be to be good social members of society. Right. Well, and I think to some degree, you find that the manipulation that we see in social media tends to make us try to be good citizens of society, at least as far as some people want the, the world to be, right, on either side of the spectrum. Unfortunately, I, I fear that here in America, it is making us very bad citizens right, because right. it is amplifying our emotions and our emotional responses to political ideas. And, and it is very much dividing us yeah. into two camps that hate each other. Right. Well, I'm fascinated because I actually didn't know you were going to go in that direction with the question in terms of how AI changes the neighborhood. I'm thinking many people are saying it expands it and you're actually saying it narrows the neighborhood. And I see that. I think that's fascinating. And I think that's something where we we ought to really be thinking deeply about, you know, is it good that I get more of what I want? Does that make me a better person or a, a more shallow person, you know? And we can extend that to the idea of um, as AI and robotics move into more parts of our lives, will this keep us from being with other humans? Because it might be easier to be with the AI. Sherry Turkle has a, a lovely sentence in which she's thinking about robot companions, and particularly sex bots, which are coming, are already here in some ways. And she says, what we're trying to have is love that's safe and made to measure. Mm -hmm. And to me, I want to say, but love isn't safe. And it shouldn't be made to measure because the relationships that we are in, the people that we love, are what challenges us to grow. Yeah. The monks here at St. John's often say that, you know, the whole point of living in community is to be living with people that you don't necessarily get along with all the time, but bumping up against them every day right. eventually wears all of the rough spots off of you. Right. At least that's the ideal. And I've heard people say similar things about marriage, you know, yeah. that you just annoy each other into heaven. Um, <laughs> well, and, yeah. I think that there is something that we need to think about there, that if we devise robotic companions who are always cheerful, are always telling us what we want to hear, again, this isn't the way a neighborhood should be. No. 
Well, and I've heard the phrase, marriage is not there to make you happy, it's there to make you holy. And we could say the same thing about other relationships as well. But you've just hit on a a question that I want you to go a little deeper on in this idea of a recent book chapter you've written called Religious Perspectives on Sex with Robots, which I find absolutely fascinating. And you do note that not all religions have the same sexual ethic, but AI does pose profound questions about our conceptions of love and companionship and relationship and even sex. So go a little deeper on what you think we need to be thinking about and asking about sex robots, specifically from a Christian perspective. Well, you know, many said, well, is a sex robot any different than just like a blow-up doll? Mm -hmm. Um, and, well, it's supposed to be. The idea is that if you can take, you know, essentially a, a sexual doll, but then you add artificial intelligence to it, that you are adding the relational component. Mm. No, the question you have to ask here is, well, what does this say about our approach to sex? Some of the questions that, that I would ask about having a, a robotic sexual companion is, well, first of all, can the robot say no? <laughs> can the robot say no? I'd really prefer to have sex with somebody else. Because if they can't, what you've got is a sex slave. Yeah. You know, um, in a sense, I'd say no better than a prostitute, but even worse than a prostitute because you're not paying it. Right. And so then we have to ask, is this healthy? Or will this foster in us attitudes toward sex? Coming back to Cherry Turkle's love that's safe and made to measure, people have also said, well, sex pots would be a safe way to um, have sex for people who are in, have disabilities or are in difficult conditions, like they're incarcerated. This does not fit the Christian view of sexuality. The computer may look relational, may act relational in certain ways, but the ideal for sex is that it's a relational bond between right. two people. And of course, in the Catholic Church and among Orthodox Jews, the sex act should also always be open to procreation, and there's not going to be any procreation in doing it with a robot. Right. Yeah, I think this raises a lot of deep questions, not just about the actions that we might take with a machine, but also what it does to us in terms of shaping our our minds and our hearts, either toward God or away from God, toward people or away from people, as you've as you've mentioned before. Well, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy here. We can talk about love and war, because that's another area that you've probed in your work. And in a recent article in Moral Theology, sort of switching streams here rather radically, you talk about lethal autonomous weapons, LAWs. And you ask, can they be just? Which is an interesting um, and deep question. So we asked similar questions about nuclear weapons in the 20th century. Talk a little bit about how, in terms of applying the just war theory, these two types of weapons are both the same and different, and what new challenges autonomy or true autonomy poses for us now in the 21st century. 
Well, the first thing that we need to recognize is that there are levels of autonomy in our weapons systems. And uh, the military in the United States has categorized these as human in the loop, human on the loop, and human off the loop. So if a human is in the loop, it's in a sense working uh, in a partnership with the weapon. So the weapon may have certain capabilities, but the human being is um, perhaps guiding it or uh, perhaps making certain decisions while the weapon itself makes others. Mm. Human on the loop simply means the human being has the ability to override the decisions. So all the decisions are being made by the weapon itself, but a human has an ability to step in and make changes. Mm. And then, of course, if a human is off the loop, then the weapon is simply making all of the decisions fully autonomously. It's been interesting in that I co-authored an article for Peace Review with a retired U.S. general, Robert Latif. I also spoke at a conference at the law school at Penn State that had a lot of military personnel there, both current and retired. And they don't want humans off the loop. And they're even very wary about just human on the loop weapons. Their concern, of course, is that this takes strategic command out of their hands, out of human hands. And the biggest worry is that just as we've seen on Wall Street with automated trading and the speed, you know, it led to the big Wall Street crash about 20 years ago. The computers were simply trading at too fast a speed for the human traders to keep up with. And their concern is that the tempo of war could also start to go too fast for human decision makers to keep up with what's going on. Now, if we look just at where humans are at least on the loop or in the loop, there are people like the roboticist Ron Arkin at Georgia Tech who have argued that these kinds of weapons, autonomous decision-making weapons, would actually be a good thing because they've said they would not react emotionally. And the so many war crimes are committed in the in the heat of of battle in in the fury of human emotion hmm. and that actually this would be lessened with autonomous weapons i'm not sure that this is the case it would really all depend on what kind of an ethic we give our weapons But when you really think about warfare, isn't our ethic essentially going to boil down to, we want to win? Right. And I fear that anything greater than that, any deeper ethical issues about human, saving human life, would be window dressing, in a sense, rather than truly deeply embedded in the decision-making process for these weapons. I also worry that if we can deploy autonomous weapons on the field rather than human boots on the ground, that this is going to make it too easy to go to war, that it's difficult for a commander-in-chief 
to explain to people why their sons and daughters have to get killed right. on the battlefield. But it's not difficult to deploy weapons. But my greatest fear is it comes from a quotation by a Marine general who said, you know, when we think of autonomous weapons, we think of like these big Kalashnikov tanks and stuff. We think of guided missiles. But I said, what we really want with these weapons are weapons that are smart, small, cheap, and ubiquitous. Think about that for a minute. If we have weapons that are smart, small, cheap, and ubiquitous, they're going to be ubiquitous. They're going to fall into the hands of terrorists. They're going to be deployed easily. I worry. I, I saw a concept thing on Twitter the other day of having a smartphone, and then it, it had a little tiny drone that would pop out mm. of the smartphone, and they were like, the new way to t take selfies. You, know, you can send that tiny drone up in the air and take your selfies and then call it back to your smartphone. And I thought, mm hmm What and else could you do with that? What else could you do with that? <laughs> Think about the possibilities for assassination with tiny drones that have facial recognition My goodness. that could be sent out or think about the possibilities for genocide if you could put certain characteristics into these drones, weaponize them, and send them out in swarms. You know, I'm thinking of, of the book of Revelation and some of the things that St. John was trying to describe. And we've all, you know, over the years have figured out or tried to figure out what is that he's talking about in terms of the apocalyptic end of humanity. And I, I just feel like we're hitting this critical mass of things that could be destructive on a massive scale and so easily. Some of the things that you're talking about, Noreen, are really, really provoking thoughts because We've designed these weapons, as you as you call them, for speed and efficiency. And that's what's that's what's good about a machine, right? As you talked about earlier, what tools are better for us that we're not that good at? And being fast and efficient and accurate is where we fall, that that human messiness comes in. So if we've kind of gotten a worldview of that's good, and I would even allude to Julie Carpenter's work on the bomb diffuser robots that um, she studied in terms of the soldiers' relationship with them and the, and the emotional attachment to these machines that went and basically did the dirty work of diffusing a bomb instead of a person. And when you extend that, what does it do to your mind and heart to say, well, isn't it better that a machine does that than a human? I believe that we certainly need technology. We need tools. There are things that machines do much better than we do. I think what I want to come back to is something I mentioned earlier. It's this idea that machines should be in our image, this idea that they should be like us. And the problem is that we can only take a piece of our image and the piece we're trying to take is instrumental reason. Uh, Joseph Weizenbaum wrote about this way back in the 1980s in his book, Computer Power and Human Reason. And he pointed out that when you take instrumental reason and you separate it 
from human love, from human companionship and community, it becomes monstrous. The Nazis were very reasonable as they approached how to do the final solution, how to take out the Jews. Reason by itself is wrong. As we try to make computers in our image, I fear that we will change ourselves to be more like them. Microsoft guru Darren Lanier has pointed out that he said, you know, if a computer ever passes the Turing test, it's not going to be that the computer got that much more human-like. It's going to be that we got that much more computer-like because (laughs) we are the more flexible of the pair. And I want to say something about flexibility because think about the stories of Jesus and Jesus' actions in the Gospels. In a lot of those stories, he gets into a dispute with the Pharisees. And what are those disputes always about? They're always about flexibility. For the Pharisees, it was, we need to keep the law. We need to be on the straight and narrow. We need to follow a protocol. You could even say, we have a program. And Jesus was always breaking the boundaries of that program and saying, no, your law is too narrow. Your neighborhood is too narrow. Your thinking is too much about process and not enough about love. And so as we try to make computers in our image, we really need to guard against remaking ourselves in the computer's image because that is going to be far too narrow, far too legalistic, far too process-bound, and not at all what Jesus tried to teach us. Right. You know, this isn't even a question I had on my list to ask you, but it really comes up right now. Let's step into the computer ethics or the AI ethics lane for a second and and discuss this, this uh, concept of the law versus grace, the algorithm versus love. I think what I'm seeing in the AI ethics world is a similar pharisaical bent towards getting a system of rules and laws that people will just obey so that we can have good and, and beneficial and benevolent AI. But in a sense, it's trying to make us be, you know, toe the line and obey the rules and not be bad people. So how would you apply what you've just been talking about as our concept of machines into our concept of machine ethics? You know, we're hitting a wall that we've hit before. And this was back in the early days of AI when people approached it through symbolic reasoning. They thought, you know, if we can just come up with the right reasoning process, we'll come up with computers that do what we do. And of course, they had early successes in playing chess solving calculus problems, that kind of thing, because these are very limited, rule-bound worlds. And so symbolic logic and processing worked very well in those worlds. It didn't work well in the larger worlds of human communication, of, of even just navigating around a natural environment. Well, now we're managing those worlds, mostly with big data, Mm. but there's still that limitation. And as we approach computer ethics, we're almost going back 
to the old symbolic reasoning and saying, well, if we could just come up with the right set of rules, the right processes, we can make computers ethical. But don't you see, that was exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. And that was exactly what Jesus was fighting against because love doesn't work that way. If there were rules, even if we go back to this question of autonomous weapons, if there was a, a system of rules that made battle work, made warfare work, we'd have found it by now. <laughs> there isn't. If there was a system of ethics that made human society work, we'd have found it by now. But we haven't because there isn't. It's not rule-bound. The same way that we found that human intelligence is not, it doesn't work like a computer program. It's not a system of symbolic reasoning, at least not in general. Right. Only in certain areas. Right. Well, oh my goodness. I always say this, but nobody can see how big I'm grinning on a podcast because of what I'm listening to from the brilliant guest. Noreen, I think one of the biggest challenges AI presents us with is one of definition. And this is kind of what we're talking about right now. Some people say it's just a tool. Others say it's a partner or a collaborator. Still others call it a surrogate. And the most extreme might even say it's a savior. In fact, we've seen big hype around that. So, so what do you say, Noreen? How should we view AI and how can we hope to control the narrative in a world where hype makes both headlines and secures funding. Exactly. And that's a problem, um, particularly the latter. It's said that one of the researchers at MIT used to have a sign that hung over his desk that said, we shall overclaim. <laughs> and AI has always been an overhyped field. Yeah. It's always been just around the corner. If you go back to predictions made by some of the earliest pioneers in AI, like Marvin Minsky, back in the 1960s, he was saying, oh, within eight to 10 years, we're going to have computers that think as deeply as, as we do. Rick Kurzweil has been predicting that singularity is going to happen 10 years from whenever. <laughs> and it becomes a sliding scale that for a while it was going to be, um, you know, by the 21st century. For a while it was, well, by 2020, then it was 2030. Now he's saying 2045. It just keeps being pushed back. People want to believe the hype of AI. Uh, they want to think that it's just around the corner, but they also have to promise that it's just around the corner to get funding. Right now, I would say to people, don't believe that everything you hear called AI is AI. 80 to 90% of it is just regular computer programming. There's it's nothing AI about it. But the AI has become the buzzword, the catchword, the way to get customers, the way to get funding. And I think we have to recognize that if this is hype, it's not just around the corner. GPT-3 did not become intelligent or human-like overnight or sentient, as, uh, as I think um, Blake the engineer Lemoyne. said it was. Yeah. Okay, so, so we're landing more on it's a tool. And I think that, people would, that people would agree that it's a tool, but it gets back to what you're talking about, this hope. And I think it is hope 
for some people, does it replace other kinds of hope in solving the world's biggest problems, answering the world's biggest questions? And where does religion come into this? This is something you've thought long and deeply about. Well, I think that in many ways, as we as a society and as individuals have become less religious, as we do not believe in God or or angels or anything other than ourselves, as uh, somebody put it, it could be lonely being the only sentient beings in the cosmos. And so I think we are we are built for a relationship. We are built to be in relationship with each other and with our Creator, with God. And when we are not in satisfying relationships with each other, when we are not in relationship with God, with a being that is other to us, that is not exactly like us, we miss that and we start looking for it. Now, we are looking towards AI to fill both of these gaps. We've already talked quite a bit about how we're looking for AI to be the perfect companion, the perfect sexual partner, the perfect comrade in warfare. But we're also looking for AI to fill in where God used to be. And Mm. in that sense, we're looking for some sentience that is not human sentience. Well, we look for sentience in other animals, and I think we are finding that they are more sentient than we thought they were, certainly more than Descartes gave them credit for being. We find that we're looking for extraterrestrials, hoping that there might be some sentience out there that we can communicate with. And we're thinking, well, we're also looking for AI that will build a sentience ourselves that will be other to us. And I think we're looking in the wrong direction. Same way that we look for AI to solve our problems like climate change for us. We're saying, well, you know, maybe artificial intelligence will come up with solutions. It's a tool. We need to come up with the solutions. We can use computers to model the climate. We have been doing that, and our models are becoming better and better, although I think we're finding that they've been pretty far off the mark in suggesting that changes that would happen in 2050 or 2180 are happening already. So we have to recognize, and I think we have to take responsibility And in some ways, when we think, well, AI will solve our problems for us, we're abdicating responsibility for solving our own problems. Well, and I think as a side note here, there's been recent discussion, especially in Kate Crawford's new book, relatively new book, The Atlas of AI, that these giant compute resources are actually contributing to some of the climate problem with the the vast mining for batteries and for, you know, how much electricity it takes to run a data center that does AI modeling, which is just fantastic in terms of the large sense of that word. Let's go a little deeper on what you've just been talking about, because you have a new book coming out titled The Artifice 
in intelligence. And the subtitle is Human and Divine Relationships in a Robotic World. And you've talked about this a little bit just now, but I want you to go a little deeper into how this idea of artifice and not not artificial, but artifice, that's an interesting distinction there, impacts our relationship with God and with each other, and specifically in terms of how the Christian doctrines of the incarnation and resurrection impact our current fascination with AI. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. (laughs) I have a habit of doing that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thinking about artifice. Yeah. If you go back to the Bible, and let's just think about the golden calf, idol, works, gods that are made by human hands. You know, this was artifice, and this is something we are warned against time and time again in the Bible. It's this idea that through our own artifice, through the works of our own hands, we can make a god for ourselves. And in many ways, we we wouldn't I don't think, well, there are very few that would call AI a god, although there was briefly an attempt in Silicon Valley to have a church of AI. It it did not get a lot of adherence. However, we act like AI is a god. We take its answers, its proclamations, if they came down from on high. And in that sense, we make of it an idol. And the thing about idols, the way this comes back again to Sherry Turkle's, you know, love made to measure, safe and made to measure, is that idols are gods that are safe and made to measure. If we make them ourselves, then in a sense, we think we can control them, but it never works out. And it's always a substitute for the real thing and and a a distraction, a, a dead end that we wander down. So that's the first part of your question. Now, let's see. The second part of your question was about the resurrection and the incarnation. And I think here, and this is a major theme in this new book that's coming out, is the importance of embodiment. When we set aside intelligence, we, we would like to think that it's something that can exist outside of our body. You know, it's this nice abstract thing, the same way that the cloud is this nice abstract, beautiful, clean place. And then we say, no, actually, it's very dirty server farms that are using, you know, fossil fuels. Intelligence seems like this nice disembodied thing, but it isn't. Everything about our intelligence is rooted in our body and in our bodily experience within our environment. And Everything about how we relate to each other is rooted in our body. In this book, I ask the question, what makes for an authentic relationship? And Karl Barth had four criteria for that. The first one was, look the other in the eye. Well, that is certainly embodied. The second was, speak to and hear the other. And you could say, well, that's not so embodied. We're doing that. I mean, we're doing that right now across yeah. the airwaves through computers. But you still have to recognize that the, the ability to not be authentic is compounded as we get more physically distant in our communications. 
And then Bart said, you need to aid the other. Now that aid can be physical. It can also be mental or emotional and be mediated by computers. But his final one was he said, you have to do it gladly. Aiding another, if you coerce, well, that's slavery. And you have to do it gladly. Can a computer do anything gladly? To do that, it has to have emotions. But emotions are completely rooted in our body. In fact, if you look at what uh, psychologists have written about emotion, they said, well, it's a four-step process. We have a stimulus. That stimulus elicits in us a physical response. You know, think about uh, fear. You're out hiking in the, the Minnesota Boundary Waters. You hear rustling in the underbrush. You know there are black bears around. And uh, the first thing that happens when you hear that rustling is your heart starts racing. You know, you're ready <laughs> for fight or flight. Then your brain kicks in and analyzes both things. What was the stimulus that I heard, saw, felt? What's going on in my body? And that then produces the emotion. So the computer can perceive a stimulus. It can jump then right to step three and analyze that stimulus and think of the correct response. But it hasn't felt that. It hasn't felt an emotion. So when we say, can a computer show love back to us? The answer is no. You know, I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton was president and people made a little bit of fun out of the fact that he would say to people, I feel your pain. But that is what we need with love is to actually feel empathy, to feel another person's pain. People who don't have that feeling who might observe someone in trouble, calculate what would be the socially correct response and act on that, we call them sociopaths. Yeah. So a computer without a body is going to feel eventually to us empty, Yeah. sociopathic, because it doesn't really feel. And the other thing is to establish relationship in the most authentic and the deepest sense you need to be there. You need to touch each other. We are physical creatures. You know, they certainly have shown that children that were raised in Romanian orphanages where nobody ever touched them just could not develop properly. And so we need the body. We need bodily experience of ourselves and our world and of being with each other and I think Christianity brings that to the table by sanctifying the body through the incarnation, that even God, God's self, came and took on human flesh, and with that, human pain and suffering and feelings and death to truly establish a full and authentic relationship with us. And we carry that a step further in with what we believe about resurrection. In the Apostles' Creed, we say we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that we don't just get subsumed into some kind of Godhead. We're not even just souls that flit off to some disembodied existence in heaven. Now, I think a lot of Christians 
think the latter or talk like they think the latter. Oh, yeah, but her soul went to heaven. Yeah. Um, but that is not what Christianity teaches. What no. Christianity teaches is that when the resurrection comes, we will be resurrected in the body the same way that Jesus was resurrected. It was a changed body, but he remained an embodied soul. Yeah, you know, the, this is just powerful refutation of the whole idea of human enough, which is what a lot of, I mean, even Westworld, the show has said, well, you know, if you can't tell, does it matter? And I think what you're saying is, yeah, it does. And ultimately, it does. we ultimately we get there through the hope in Christ and and the incarnational ministry that he he modeled for us. On the other hand, now that you bring up Westworld, I do <laughs> want to bring up the caveat that it does matter how we treat robots. Hmm. And here's why I say that. And it's, it's interesting because people have found at conferences that if they leave the robots alone, they will, have a, they will get destroyed. Now, many years ago, there was this really simplistic robot called Hitchbot that uh, people were taking on trips, you know, the idea is it was going to hitchhike its way across the world. And it made it across Europe, and it made it all across Canada. And when it got to the Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it was torn apart, poor Hitchbot. Now, Hitchbot didn't suffer. So in a sense, I'm not saying it matters to the robot. The robot isn't, it doesn't care. It's not sentient. It doesn't feel pain. But it matters to the people who destroy the robot. How we treat things that are human-like is going to form us. And, you know, here, uh, St. Benedict, in his rule for monasteries, he has a chapter on the cellarer. This is the person who is in charge of all the goods in the monastery. And he says, first of all, about the seller, you know, if, if someone comes and asks you for something, insofar as you can meet their request, do it. If you can't, at least give them a good word. In that context, so he's saying people come first, deal with people, meet their needs as much as you can. And, and if you can't meet their physical needs, at least try to meet their mental and emotional needs and treat them well. Then he says, and treat all the goods of the monastery as if they were the vessels of the altar. Now, what that says is we need to treat even things with respect, because things stand in proximity to the divine the same way we do. Now, to me, that says we need to do a much better job of treating nature, of treating the earth with respect. But we need to treat our computers with respect, too. And we need to treat robots with respect because ultimately, how we treat things shapes us. And it's that shaping of us. You know, Aristotle said the same thing. He said, what, how we get virtue is by doing virtuous acts. How we get virtue is by repeating doing good things over and over and over again. And how we 
get less virtue is by doing bad acts over and over and over again. We are formed by everything we do, and that everything extends beyond just how we treat each other. It also extends into how we treat the earth, and that means how we treat everything. So that includes AI. So yes, we need to treat AI as well, but we shouldn't make the category error of saying, well, then that puts them in the same category as human beings. And that takes deep thought because you can easily go to that direction of robot rights and personhood for machines when you say, we, but you can do that with everything, right? Animal rights, et cetera. So yes, you can. It's, it's that fine line of respecting creation, including our creations, and not calling them us and not deifying them. Yeah, and here them. I come back to my dog. I love my dog. I need to respect my dog. I need to treat my dog with all love and graciousness. But I shouldn't start thinking my dog is my child or is another <laughs> human being because it's not. Right. I think that is not respecting the otherness of the other. And I think we need to respect that, whether it's in animals, whether it's in God, whether it's in our creations like AI. Well, as we close, when we talked earlier, you said, and I quote, I'm almost done with AI in terms of what you're thinking and writing about. So what's next for Noreen Herzfeld? What areas can we look forward to hearing about from you in maybe the next phase of your of your incredible writing and thinking? Well, you know, you'll, you'll certainly still hear me talking about AI. I have this new book coming out in November and uh, still continue to have thoughts about yeah. what this is about. However, I am starting to move in my writing in the next couple of projects. We'll deal with technology writ large. So it will be broader than just AI. And I think I'm moving more towards thinking about what do we need as far as a, a new philosophy of technology and of the role that technology plays in our lives. And in particular, I want to look at that from the stance of climate change and how technologies might help us mitigate climate change, but how technologies got us into this difficulty in the first place, and how our wrong thinking about technology may be exacerbating the situation we find ourselves in. And so right now, climate change is the question we need to deal with before we can deal with more subsidiary questions. It's going to be the driver of what happens to humanity over the next 50 years. Noreen Hersfeld, as always, it's been illuminating and inspiring to talk to you and expanding in terms of what, what my own thoughts are about these big topics. So thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Gretchen. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh, 
and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.